Here we go. Genesis chapter 45, starting in verse 16. Today we're going to cover what is actually going to be the most difficult part of this entire story regarding Jacob and his 12 sons and Joseph and, and this whole story. If you're familiar with the Bible, uh, then you kind of know what I'm talking about. If you're not familiar with the Bible, I deeply apologize, but I just don't have time to go through the whole story. It's been 22 years and like 45 chapters in your Bible working towards this point. And so I wish I could recap it all, but I don't have the time to. But today we're going to get to what is the most difficult portion of this whole entire story. Like, like this is the, the, the moment that is going to define this story, and you probably don't even know what it is. You probably skipped over it when you read this story before. You probably read through here and be like, I know what the hardest part is. It's this or it's that. And, and I, I did that for years and years and years, and I was reading through studying, and I was like, oh my gosh, look at this. Look at this verse. Look at what happens here. This is by far the most difficult part of this story. And this is the last hurdle to clear before God, his plan becomes fully clear, fully like mature and realized. And so this is kind of built into all of us. Like we know that there's like this moment in any set of circumstances or any situation where you have to get over this set of circumstances, this last hurdle, this most difficult part. Otherwise, the thing that God is doing or the plan or even if it has nothing to do with God, the thing that you're trying to accomplish is not going to work. That's why we all have sayings in our society like, I got to get over the hump or trying to get out of the woods or we're in the clear now or it's all downhill from here. All of those are pointing to the idea that there is a section of every problem process in life that is the most difficult, that is the most formational. And today we're going to hit that in Genesis chapter 45. And in our story, there's a lot of things that are in place to accomplish God's plan. There's a lot of things that have been set up and manipulated and worked towards the glory of God and the salvation of his people. But this last thing, we have to see it happen or there will not be a conclusion that God is honored with. We talked about this last week, that our church exists to make a difference, right? Our mission is to glorify God by helping people know God, discover purpose, find freedom, and make a difference. And so far, there is no difference made in this story. Nobody's saved from the famine. No lineage is carried on. Joseph and his brothers, no, the big difference that God is trying to make through this whole scenario has not been made yet. And so we have to have this last thing take place so that a difference can be made in the life of not only Joseph and his brothers, but for eternity for the people of God and eventually our salvation as Jesus is going to come from this family. So here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to take a look at the thing that God has put in place for the success. We're going to look at the story kind of that God has painted, the, the thing that they have in front of them. And then we're going to look at the hurdle, the final hurdle, the final thing that they need to do in order to actually step into all that stuff that God has for them. And then we're going to see how the difficulty of this defining moment fits back into the picture. All right. So here we go. Genesis chapter chapter 45. Let's do it. We're going to be in verse 16. Remember, the brothers have no food. 
They live in Canaan. There's a famine in Canaan, so they've come back to Egypt. When they got to Egypt, it was their brother Joseph, but they didn't know it at first. And then he was like, hey, surprise, it's me. And they were terrified because 22 years earlier, they had decided they wanted to kill him. They ended up selling him into slavery. And that's how he ended up in Egypt. And he rose to second in command of all of Egypt. So he's just said to them, surprise, I'm in charge of Egypt, but I'm not going to kill you. You should actually go home and bring dad and the whole family, bring them back down, live with me. We'll make it through the famine. And that's where we pick it up. Verse 16, it says, when the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers has come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this, load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan. Take your father and your households and come to me and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you shall eat of the fat of the land and you Joseph are commanded to say do this take wagons from the land of Egypt from your little ones and from your wives for your wives and bring your father and come and have no concern for your goods for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours the sons of Israel did so and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey to each and all of them he gave a change of clothes but to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. And to his father he sent as follows, 10 donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt and 10 female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision for his father on the journey. Okay. So first, like I said, we get a picture of this incredible thing that God has set in front of the brothers. Okay, Joseph had said, hey, how about you guys come live with me? That was his plan, right? They had all the food in Egypt. Canaan was going to, if they lived in Canaan, they were going to starve to death. Joseph was like, come live in my house. It'll be great. I have plenty of food. I got plenty of room. I'm second in command of this giant country. We'll be fine. And Pharaoh hears of it. He's like, no, 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 no. He's like, you come to me and I will give you, he says, the best of the land. The best of the land of Egypt. Now think about this. They're living out in the middle of nowhere. Nobody knows who they are or where they're from or this country or their situation. And all of a sudden, the most powerful nation in the world at the time is offering to take care of them and give them the best that the land of Egypt has to offer. God has orchestrated this just to save them. The entirety of the Middle East is going through this huge famine and God has orchestrated events and circumstances and the lives of people in order to save these brothers. And it's been actually a 22-year process involving tons and tons and tons of variables. Now you might listen to that and be like, okay, cool. Like God's going to save them from, from dying. That's great. What if... What if God came to you this morning? Actually, let's, let's flip that. Let's say you go to church this morning. It's really good. And you leave somewhere and uh, you get in a car wreck. And in that car wreck, you almost die. You almost die and, and the, the paramedics come and they go, oh my gosh, you almost died. If there would this been an inch this way or an inch that way or, or, and this is not unlikely. Lots of you have had circumstances where you almost died, right? And so you go home and you tell your family, I almost died today. You know, I feel like God saved me. This is incredible. And what if God came to you tonight and he said, you know what? I've been working on saving you this afternoon, the, the whole thing that happened this afternoon, I have been manipulating circumstances and thinking about how I would save you in that circumstance for the last 22 years. 
I, I, I started by, by doing this with this family over here, and then these people over here, I just moved them kind of like this, and then I, I actually changed the weather patterns for the world in order that the, the people would see their need for this, and then I took this government, and I, I kind of gave them a nudge over here, and then I rose this leader up to power and put him in place at the exact time to save you. How many of you would be encouraged by that this morning? How many of you would have a change in your understanding of God this morning if you were like, wow, he's been working on this for that long? He's been using... Think about the resources that God has at his disposal to work good in your life. We talked a couple of weeks ago about the normal Christian experience is that God works evil for good. That's normal. That's not like the exception to the rule. That's not the weird thing. That's normal for us. All of us had stories. We all raised our hands. We were like, yeah, I went into this thing. It looked weird and it ended up being great because God's that good. And he's been doing that over and over and over for centuries upon centuries upon centuries and millions upon millions of people who follow him. And so when you sit here this morning, know that God has not changed. Know that he is still working for your salvation. He is still working for your good. He is still going to use all the resources at his disposal, whether it's weather patterns or governments or situations in life, to accomplish what he desires to accomplish in your life. All right, so we saw that they were saved from death, that God uses his incredible power and resources to accomplish that. And the second thing that we see is that they are incredibly set up for the future. They're not just saved. They now have a future and a hope and a security for a long time in front of them. If you ever look at the uh, Middle East and you, you, you pull up Google Maps, you could do it on your phone right now if you wanted to, and you, look, you click the satellite view and you just look down from above on the Middle East, it's all brown. It's like Moses Lake for miles. It's just brown, dead, everything's awful. And then right in the middle, there's this little green triangle. It's not little, it's actually huge. But it, when you zoom out far enough to see Africa and the whole thing, there's this bright green triangle right in the middle of it. Well, that's the Nile River, River Delta. That's what biblically would be called the land of Goshen. And this is what Pharaoh is offering to these agricultural workers, like the best possible land in the entire world from where they live. Like, like not just like better. He's, God's not just going to save them like, wow, we almost died there, but we barely made it through. No, God's give them the best of the best. Like he's not just, they're not just going to barely scrape by. And what we learn from God about this is he is working for you to end up in the perfect situation for you. He's not working for you to end up in a mediocre situation. God's call on your life is not that you would end up in a situation that's like, eh, you know, six to one, half dozen to the other, we're okay. No, no, he is working for the perfect situation for you. So when you resist him, when you say, no, no, I'm not into that. No, I'm not quite going to do what you call me to do. No, I'm not going to make that step. You are resisting the best. And if you find yourself in a situation that is not the best this morning, know that God's not done with you. He's continuing to work. This is how he works. This is his character. He is not trying to get you to a place of mediocrity. Can, can I get an amen from that? Like so many people live mediocre lives and they settle for mediocre lives. I heard a pastor say it this week. So many people settle for less than Jesus paid for. If I ordered you lunch this afternoon, 
I was like, how many are in your family? And you're like, we got a bunch of kids. I'm like, okay, tell me what they all want. And I'm like, you know, we ordered it on the app and I sent you down to the restaurant and you came back with one cheeseburger. I, I paid for dinner for the whole family. I, I wanted to bless all you guys. I want you all to eat. Yeah, well, we went to pick it up and there was only a cheeseburger, so we left. Why didn't you go to the counter and be like, I think he bought the whole thing, right? So many Christians do that. They come to church and like, yeah, this is really good. And then they settle for less than what God actually wants for them. Can we not be that kind of people? And God saves them from death. He gives them hope for this future. And then I don't know how else to explain it, but he just starts to show off. Like at the end of this, he just is like, like mic drop. Like this is, this is how cool I am. And you may not have read it, but let's go back real quick. Look at what Pharaoh says. Verse 19, And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, Do this, take wagons for the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives. Now, you don't think anything of that, right? Because it's 2020 and you're like, Woo, wagons, right? This is the first mention in the entirety of your Bible. And we've been doing this for like 2,500 years. Uh, I haven't been doing, I'm not, I look good from age. No, when, from the start of Genesis to Genesis 45, it's like 2,500 year span. This is the first mention in your Bible of anything with wheels on it. Wheels are like just being invented in humanity at this period of time. Okay, so when he says send wagons, this is like cutting edge technology. This is like mind blowing. Like these people had probably never seen a wheel before, like let alone a cart that could actually support weight. They're probably going, wheels? Are you kidding me? Like this is mind blowing. I looked it up this week. I was studying it and they say that the wheel was invented. Uh, the oldest examples of a wheel that we have uh, still existing today are potter's wheels about 4,500 BC. And this story is taking place about 5,000 BC. So this is like on the very front edge of the invention of the wheel for humanity. And God is using that to go pick up his people and bring them down to Egypt. It'd be like if you were having trouble paying rent. You're like, yeah, I'm kind of struggling, COVID, lost my job, don't know what I'm going to do. And Elon Musk gives you a call. And he's like, yeah, I'm going to send a spaceship to pick you up. And you guys can swing by the moon on the way back here to my mansion. You can live here. Like, I, that's the kind of mind-blowing thing that God is doing. Like, this is like beyond their wildest dreams. And I'm not going prosperity gospel on you. I'm not telling you like, oh, if you're following God, he's going to give you the best and the healthiest and the greatest. But I am saying this, God is not limited by your expectations of what can be done. Can you imagine what they thought when they're sitting there in Canaan waiting for the brothers to come back and they pull up in carts with wheels? They'd probably never seen maybe once or twice in their entire life, like a wheel or something that rides on wheels. And they're like, hey, get in. We're riding to Egypt. They're like, mind blowing. Like humanity is now inventing the wheel and God is using the wheel to carry his people into their salvation from this famine. And here's what we learn. God is able to give you blessings beyond what you even think is possible beyond what you even think is possible right here, right now. So we have this incredible picture of what God has done for them. They're going to be saved. They have a hope. The best of the land is in front of them. They have these carts that they are going to ride on with wheels. Can I get an amen? And look at what Joseph says in verse 24. Then Joseph sent his brothers away. And as they departed, 
he said to them, do not quarrel on the way. Here's what's going to be the hardest part of this entire story. Here's a, here's a little hint, Bible study people. When you're reading through the Bible and somebody says something that doesn't make sense, you should probably pay attention to that. Because when they say something that doesn't, you're like, that's weird. Why did he say that? It probably has a very deep and powerful meaning if you drill down on it a little bit. And this one actually doesn't make any sense, right? He said, don't be mad at yourselves, brothers. I know you sold me into slavery 22 years ago. I know you thought I was dead, but don't be mad at yourselves. God did it for good. God's going to save our whole family. Go back, tell dad, come down here. And then he says, and don't fight on the way home. Why would they fight on the way home? They got this incredible life in front of them. They're going to live in the best of the land of Egypt. The king of Egypt is going to give them the best of whatever he has. They're going to live with their brother who's reunited, who's actually alive. They're riding on carts with wheels for crying out loud. Why would they fight on the way home? And here's the hardest part of the story. They're going to go home. They're going to say, hey, dad, guess what? Joseph's alive. And what's dad going to do? What? Joseph's alive. You told me he was dead. Not only did you tell me he was dead, you brought me his coat soaked in blood. And then for the last 22 years, you let me believe that my favorite son had died. And what's going to happen is everybody's going to find out. Everybody's going to know exactly what they did. Their dad's going to know. Their wives are going to know. Their kids are going to know. They'll be getting on the carts like, wait, where are we going? We're going to see Joseph. Joseph, who's Joseph? Well, he was our brother. I thought he was dead. Well, yeah, funny story about that. They have to walk this road, this two-week journey from Egypt back to Canaan. They have to walk this road of confession and repentance. Or they'll never see any of that great stuff that God has in front of them. They had this incredible life just waiting for them. This incredible hope, this incredible security, this incredible future, this incredible freedom. They're going to ride on carts with wheels. And they got to walk home and first tell dad what they did. Can you see why they might fight on the way home? I didn't do it. You did it. Simeon, it was totally your fault. I told you it was a bad idea. It was your fault. I'm blaming it on you when we get there. Right? There's probably a couple of them there like, okay, here's the plan. I don't want to tell dad. I don't want to see the look on his face. So let's just go out of town, camp for two weeks, come back and be like, yeah, we tried. Dad didn't want to come and then live in Goshen. Like, let's not tell. I'm sure there was that temptation in their hearts, right? Because there's so many times that God puts this incredible life right in front of us. And we just don't want to take that step of confession and repentance to step into that life he has for us. And there is person after person after person after person on this earth who God has an incredible future for and they stop short because they don't want to confess anything. They don't want to repent of anything. They don't want to have to say I was wrong. I was talking with my wife this week and, and we were like, why is this so hard and life and this and that? And, you know, it doesn't seem like we were just talking about politics and things like that. And I said, you know what? They'll never do that because they would have to say they were wrong. And she goes, why don't they just say they were wrong? And it would make life so much easier for people. And I go, welcome to the world. 
If we just lived in a world where people had an okay time saying they were wrong, I'm sorry, I messed up, please forgive me, life would completely change. For the brothers, it will absolutely change. They will end up in freedom. They will end up not dying because of the famine. Their lives will be saved. They will end up with the best of the land of Egypt. They will be reunited with their brother. Their father will get to see his son who he hasn't seen in 22 years. But they got to take that step of confession. They got to take that long walk home where dad's going to know. They have to look their father in their eye and say, hey dad, Joseph's still alive we're sorry. And we let you believe he was dead for the last 22 years. And lots of people aren't willing to take that step. God puts it so great of clarity in their heart and they just don't want to admit they were wrong. They don't want to confess. They don't want to surrender. They don't want to walk in the way that God has called them to walk. The Bible says that the good things God has prepared for your life aren't even worthy to be compared with the momentary difficulties. And this is such a clear picture of that scenario playing out. They have this incredible life waiting for them, but they have to walk this road of repentance and confession, not to pay them back for what they did. Don't misunderstand this. God's not up in heaven going, you know what? I just want them to suffer a little bit. No, no, no. He's not trying to make them earn this life that he's put in front of them. He's not trying to make them work for it or somehow do penance for this. No, no, no. This is difficult because sin is devastating, because freedom is costly. This is not hard because God's making it hard. This is hard because the consequences of sin are really real. And freedom is going to take a huge step. But once they take that step, the Spirit of God will then empower them and move them into this place of life that they never understood before. Bondage is strong. Bondage to sin is very strong. And it takes something significant to break out of it. And so look at what they do, starting in verse 25. So they went up out of Egypt and they came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob and they told him, Joseph is still alive and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And it says, Jacob's heart became numb for he did not believe them. Why do you think his heart became numb? It was this good news mixed with this awful news. What? Joseph's still alive? Wait, you didn't tell me? There's this moment here where it's as hard as it, they thought it was going to be. But verse 27, when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he, said the, when he saw the wagons, he's like, wheels, what? And that Joseph had sent to carry them, he, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go see him before I die. Chapter 46. So Israel took his journey with all that he had, and he came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night, and he said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba, and the sons of Israel carried Jacob their father, their little ones, and their wives 
wives in the wagons, y'all, that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. And they took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came to Egypt. And Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, and all his offspring he brought with him to Egypt. So look at what happens. Because these 10 men were brave enough to walk this road of confession and repentance, who gets the biggest blessing? Their father. You see that? Their father gets the biggest blessing for their obedience. Think about that for a second. Their father is the greatest benefactor to them walking in confession and repentance. Wait a second. I thought God's plan was for my life to be great. When God is working all things for good, I thought he's talking about me. Well, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. There's two sides to every purpose. There's an individual purpose and there's a corporate purpose. The purpose that you have is not only as an individual, but is also tied to a community, to a movement. That's why the church is called the body of Christ. We are the people of God. And so when you understand that there are two sides to your purpose, there are two sides to your calling in life, when you cannot do this on your own, all of a sudden you step into a freedom and a usefulness and a purpose for your life that you had no idea that existed. And Joseph's brothers now get it. They go, we're part of a whole. And in order to save their whole family, 70 people, they walk this road of confession and repentance. And their father is the greatest benefactor. Their sons and their daughters and their wives are all saved. And yes, they experience freedom. But this is how God works all the time. A father's repentance will bless his wife the most. Some, some parents finding freedom will be the greatest blessing for their children. One family walking out their knowledge of God in the community will lead to other families finding salvation and being blessed. This works over and over and over in the people of God. You doing what you are called to do is not only freedom for you, but can lead to a greater blessing from somebody else. And I've seen this over and over and over and over. As wives find freedom, their husbands are blessed. As worship leaders repent, the pastors and the people in the congregation are blessed. As people within the congregation show up that they might know God, the people who are doing the service are actually encouraged and strengthened. And over and over and over again, sometimes God calls you into obedience. And the greatest blessing for that obedience is for somebody else. Because you have a corporate purpose. You're part of the people of God. We're not just called to make a difference as individuals. We're called to make a difference as a body of Christ. Here's where we'll finish. Some of you this morning need to be encouraged by the depth of the resources that God has at his disposal to work for your good. Have you ever thought about this? God is not stingy with his grace. We kind of think God's stingy with his grace. We kind of think he's like, got a whole bunch of it. And he's like, here's a little bit. Don't complain. Right? He's not like that. He's like sending carts with wheels to these people. He's like, here's more grace. Here's more grace. He will give as much as he can possibly give if it's not going to lead to your destruction. 
And so God is not up in heaven holding back grace from you. He's pouring it out abundantly as much as is possible for him to work his work in your life. But he won't give you too much that will ruin you. So if you don't have as much as you need, that's by design. God is holding back because it's not good for you. And his goodness is revealed in that. So some of you need to be encouraged by that this morning. God's not stingy with grace. And some of you need to realize that the magnitude of the life God has in front of you is incredible. And God might be calling you to take a step this morning. Maybe it's a step of obedience. Maybe it's a step of faith. Maybe it's scary and discouraging. Maybe it's going to involve some confession. Maybe it's going to involve some repentance like it's going to involve for Joseph's brothers here. Whatever it is, I promise you it's worth it because God wants to use you and your obedience to make a difference in this world. And it's entirely possible that your steps of obedience will lead to a transformed life for somebody else because our God is that good. Amen. Let's pray. Stephen, come on up. We'll sing this last song.